Let's open our Bibles, please, to the book of Isaiah, chapter 32. Isaiah, chapter 32. Twenty verses in this chapter. We have uh, the title for the chapter is The Coming King and His Kingdom. So it has to do with Christ's coming. Verses 1 through 8 talk about the king and his rule. When Christ comes and he rules, his kingdom is upon this earth and he is the king. And his rule is, uh, all the rule there is, it will be a great rule because we'll be ruled with righteousness and true judgment. And then verses 9 through 12, we have the careless women that are addressed. Amos refers to them as well, that are at ease and various other luxurious types of lifestyle without any burden or concern about the other fellow. That song Jan sang was that we need to ask uh, and pray for one another, isn't it? Okay, and then the third section is uh, the judgment of the land and the city. You find that in verses 13 and 14. And then the last section is verses 15 through 20, the hope of the future. The hope of the future. So the first thing that we find is the king and his rule. And when we begin to study this chapter, we'll find that the connection with the previous chapter is very obvious because uh, you remember if we, as we studied in Sunday evening service, it says, As birds flying, so will the Lord of hosts defend Jerusalem, verse 5 through 9, and actually verses 4 through 9, where the Lord is seen in delivering His people and caring for His people, and then... Uh, fighting against the enemy, the Assyrian, the final Assyrian that's to be fought in the tribulation period. Of course, it has a historical reference as well, but basically all the things that we find here cannot find a fulfillment in the old historical uh, experiences of Israel and uh, what God did to the Assyrian of old. There are still so many things in the future that refer to the day of uh, their tribulation that the Lord will have to deliver them out of, and the Assyrian basically would refer to the enemies and probably the Antichrist and, and etc. in the book of Revelation that will have to be judged by the Lord. So much of this is found in the future. So let's notice the coming of king, the king and his kingdom in this chapter. And the first eight verses, the king and his rule, the king and his rule. There's much to say about the first two verses especially. It says, Behold, a king shall reign in righteousness, and princes shall rule in judgment. Now then, we know that when Jesus reigns, he will reign in righteousness. And it's a picture of the ideal king and government. We don't have an ideal king or an ideal government anywhere in the world today. With the best of governments and even in our democracy... We have all the things that we see day by day where they're still thrashing out all the, the evil that goes on from one place to another in the, connected with the government. And sometimes they deal with it and sometimes they don't. Uh, so they, they're always having to deal with the things that are not right in government today, aren't they? But one day when Jesus rules and reigns, everything will be, says, a king shall reign in righteousness. Everything will be right. Have you ever heard people say when uh, they deal with the courts and with the law enforcement or with the government or various things, certain things God tries to, that they try to do, you have certain people try to do right, others try to 
to do wrong. And it's not always righteous or just. In fact, many times it's not. But we have to learn to uh, deal with what governments we have today. And the Bible says the powers that be are ordained of God. We have to have law. We have to have some standards of what is right and wrong. And uh, the Bible says the powers that be are ordained of God. And the book of Romans says he beareth not the sword in vain. So we have to yield to government and to authority and to power. But Jesus will have a perfect reign of righteousness. And it says, And princes shall rule in judgment. And in verse 2 it says, And a man shall be as an hiding place from the wind, and a covert from the tempest, as rivers of water in a dry place, as the shadow of a great rock in a weary land. We know that the only man that can be such a hiding place is Christ. And in Christ we are sheltered from the wind and the tempest of God's wrath. We're sheltered from the wind and the tempest of a broken law. We're sheltered from a broken law. By the way, two of these things we find in the arcs. There are two arcs that are mentioned in Scripture. Remember? There's the ark of... I mean, three arcs that are mentioned in Scripture. I beg your pardon. There's the ark of Noah. There's the ark of bulrushes. And the ark of the covenant. And in these arcs, the first one... Uh, in the ark of Noah, God's judgment came upon a whole world. And Noah found refuge from what? The wrath of God or the judgment of God by being sheltered in the ark. So... We're sheltered in Christ from God's wrath and God's judgment. The second thing that we find was the, was the ark of bulrushes in which Moses was laid and sheltered, so to speak, from Satan's assaults, from Satan's attempts to kill all the babies. And he was sheltered in the ark of bulrushes. So... We're sheltered in the ark of, in Christ as a refuge from Satan's assaults. And the third one was the ark of the covenant. The ark of the covenant was an oblong box made out of acacia wood. It was uh, covered with solid gold. In fact, the mercy seat, the top and the cherubim that overshadowed the mercy seat were of one piece of gold, all molded or beaten together, all of one piece. And so this uh, Ark of the Covenant, that was the lid of it in the, in the uh, cherubim that overshadowed the mercy seat. And there's so much to be said about that, there would take all night. But I wanted to get to one point. That in that Ark, there was found the tables of stone. God had them to place the tables, two tables of the covenant in there. The law which the people of Israel had broken, remember? They had broken God's law. And when Moses came down off the mountain, the the first set of the tables of stone, the tablets of stone, he saw that they had sinned against God and he threw them down and broke them, didn't he? All to pieces. And uh, so anyway, that was symbolical of the fact that they had broken God's law. But then he gave Moses a new set of the tables of the covenant, the tables of the law, the Ten Commandments, and he put them, they were to be kept in the Ark of the Covenant. Now then, in that ark, since the law is in that ark, we are kept from the broken law. We're kept from the law that would condemn us, from the curse of the law. So three things, the only three things that could harm us. God says, I've got protection for you in Christ. What are the three things that could harm us? 
God's judgment upon sin, an ungodly world. Second thing, uh, Satan's assaults. And the third thing, by breaking God's law. It says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. Galatians 3.13 being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on the tree. So, all the three of these things, Christ is our refuge from them. So, in Christ we, have, we are sheltered from the wind and tempest of God's wrath. We're sheltered from a broken law. We're sheltered from God's holiness, by the way, because His holiness burns and he cannot, he, the Bible says he, he is of pure eyes and to behold iniquity. He cannot look upon sin with favoritism. He has to look upon sin with judgment. And because Christ died for us, we're sheltered from, from uh, God's holiness because He found Christ to be holy and He redeemed us from uh, everything that would keep us from being holy by virtue of Christ's sacrifice. We're holy and accepted in the Beloved that we might be, be before Him accounted as such. And then we're sheltered from that. We're sheltered from Satan's assaults. He protects us from all the storms of life. Getting down to the practical side of it, the storms that blow of life, the storms of life that have to do with sickness, that have to do with bereavement, that have to do with... Uh, all of our financial upsets that have to do with our uh, trials and our temptations, He is the one that is our refuge in all those times. The domestic problems, the physical and material problems, the trials and temptation, the internal rest that we might have inside of us. The Bible says, Thou wilt keep Him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on Thee because He trusteth in Thee. Now, you want peace on the inside? Keep your mind on the Lord. That's the answer. Keep your mind on the Lord. When you look at the world, it's in turmoil. When you look at the uh, the turbulent seas round about you, and the winds and the waves, there's turmoil. The trials and afflictions, there's turmoil. But when you look to the Lord, thou will keep Him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because He trusteth in thee. See, that's faith, isn't it? Faith in the Lord. Trust in the Lord in the midst of it all. So, look at verse 2 again. A man shall be as an hiding place from the wind, a covered from the tempest, as rivers of water in a dry place, as a shadow of a great rock in the weary land. Look at that. A man shall be as. So, he's our hiding place. He's our protection from the wind and from the tempest. Look at that statement. As rivers of water in a dry place. Christ is like a river of water in a dry place. Remember Moses, when the children of Israel were thirsty and they had no water to drink, God told Moses, He says, you smite the rock. Smite a rock? I mean, you know, you might dig in the ground, but to smite a rock and the waters come out, rock is the driest thing there is, isn't it? But Moses was not told to go dig a well or to start get all the children of Israel over there and see what they could find under a tree somewhere because there's usually moisture where there's, a, where there's some kind of a, a vegetation or life. He says, go find a tree and you find, you'll find moisture under that. No, he says, smite this rock. Stand before me on Horeb, a desert, a desert wilderness place with a dry rock there. And he says, you smite the rock and waters will gush forth. And so he's as the as rivers of water in a dry place. And when Moses smote that rock, 
what happened? The waters came forth in abundance. There was plenty to drink for all the children of Israel and all the cattle. Can you imagine that great multitude that found us? A well of springing water coming out of the rock. There was abundance of water. God always has plenty for us. And there was freshness. Good, fresh, clean water. Not like some of the polluted waters we have today. And I'm telling you, the world is getting pretty sad for that. And I'm not one of these fellows that goes around always talking about what's happening to the earth. But there's plenty happening to it. And there's plenty of pollution. They showed down close to the Mexican border the other day a, a picture of, I mean, the, the, the plants. I believe it was GM, wasn't it? One of them on the river there. Uh, and it showed all the pollution. I'm telling you, it, it, was, it was so horrible that you wouldn't even want to walk by, let alone some of these children out there playing and wading in that stuff. And the filth and the garbage and the polluted waters. Well, but imagine these waters that the Lord has, pure and clean. That's the kind we want. And it speaks of freshness. And by the way, it speaks of freeness. That abundant water that came forth from the rock speaks of freeness. Because it was made free to them. They didn't have to buy it. They didn't have to work for it. They didn't have to do a thing in the world but go and drink. And that speaks of the freeness of salvation. It speaks of the force that comes. You know, He's as the shadows, as rivers of water in a dry place. He's as rivers of water today, as far as the dry place of humanity is concerned. You know humanity can be rather dry. When you get out in the general public, and if you find people that are not touched with the love of Christ in their hearts, I mean, this can be a dry place too. There's many people that could care less about any one of your problems if, he, if they're a child of God, if they're touched with God's love, the Bible says the holy, the love of God, listen carefully, is spread, shed abroad in your hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. And that's where God's love comes from. And you take a person that has the love of God in his heart, he's not that kind of a person that is a, as a dry place in humanity. And then the dry place of sin, the dry place of sin, emptiness, if you seek after sin in this life, I wasn't going to preach a sermon on this, but I might do it before it's over. But this verse. But anyway, there's a dry place of sin, isn't there? I mean, that's a wilderness. You're in a place where there's thorns and briars. You're in a place where there's no comfort and no peace and no enjoyment. And a lot of people wonder why Christians, you know, Christian people are happy. Because they're happy from the inside. It's not what... It's not what you have out here that makes you happy. It's not what you obtain. It's not what uh, 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 money you have. It's not what uh, a lot of things, how you're accepted in society and all this stuff that people glory in, you know. It's how you feel on the inside. And you can lift your head up and say, I'm a child of the King. And the King shall reign in righteousness and rule in judgment. Princes shall rule in judgment. And because you are, don't look down. Look up to God and, and keep your head up and, and, and uh, know that there, well, I've given you this. I, I hate to give you everything over and over again, but there's three ways of thinking about yourself. Underthinking and overthinking and proper thinking. Remember we dealt with that? 
Underthinking means if you think too little of yourself. Overthinking, Paul says in Romans chapter 12, that a man ought not to think too highly of himself, but to think soberly, according as God has dealt to every man the measure of faith. So if you'll keep that in mind, you're, you're not to be too low and be a doormat for someone. You're not to be too high and think you're above everyone else, but you're to think soberly and you're not going to be tromping people down and you're not going to respect some fellow just because he wants uh, he has a big name in society. You're going to respect him because he's a human being. And that's as far as it goes. You know, God is a great leveler of things, isn't he? It puts us all on the same plane. Salvation for the rich and poor, the bond and free. Salvations for every race, creed, and color. Every man of... We used to say rich man, poor man, beggar, and thief, right? And it's a leveler. There was only one door in the ark, and that was in the side thereof. And everything that was up, the birds that entered in had to come down, and everything that crawled on the ground had to come up. And man entered in on the same level. They all entered in on one level. And salvation is one level. The rich man, the poor man... The blind, the beggar, the outcast, the vilest sinner, all have to be saved by grace and saved by Jesus. Neither is there salvation in any other. None of name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. And then, when we think of the as rivers of water, we need to drink of those waters that God has provided. And when we think about them, it is near. It is nigh thee. The Bible says the word is nigh thee even in thy heart and in thy mouth and in thy heart. The word of faith which we preach. That's uh, Romans chapter 10. Who shall say that you have to ascend up to heaven? Christ came down from heaven. Who shall say that you'll have to descend into the deep and bring it up from there? No, he, he's already done that too. So, the word is nigh thee even in thy mouth and in thy heart. And he says, the word of faith which we preach, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. It's as simple as that. Faith is by, uh, salvation is by believing. Salvation is by faith. And no other way. Okay, it is free, it's satisfying as well. The woman of Samaria got living water. Remember, Jesus uh, gave her living water out of... She didn't get it out of the Jacob's well, but she left her water pot and she went away in the city and says, Come see a man which told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? He revealed her sin. Then he gave her the satisfying drink. And it's life-giving water. So we find uh, something else. Oh, in this verse. Look at the last part of it. As the shadow of a great rock in a weary land. As the shadow of a great rock. If you have a great rock out here in the desert, and there's a big shadow, it makes a shadow of the sun shining on that rock. You know, if it's a great rock, there has room for plenty under there. Room for all. We'll, let, we'll say Christ is the shadow of a great... He's the great rock that casts a shadow that has room enough for all to enter into the shade. And then we say... Uh, furthermore, that you see a rock out there in the desert somewhere in the mountains, the wilderness, you know, there's no one there to charge a fee. It's free, isn't it? Just say, let's go over there. Get under that rock. There's protection. It's most satisfying and comforting and refreshing from the heat of the sun. 
Did you know that the rock bears the heat of the sun itself? The rock bears the heat of the sun itself. Here's another lesson. Listen. The judgment of God that would fall upon us like the power of a bright sun and scorch us, the judgment of God that would fall upon us, Christ is in between and He's the great rock and He bears the heat of that sun. And you know underneath you feel that rock and it's just as cool as it can be because the heat of that sun cannot penetrate through that great rock. You ever been out where there's a there's a huge rock and you put your hand on it? You say, man, that's just cool because... It bears, it absorbs the heat, it keeps the heat of that sun. And so the judgment that would have fallen upon you and I, Christ has borne. So, look at verses 1 and 2. Behold, a king shall reign in righteousness, and princes shall rule in judgment, and a man, a man shall be as in hiding place from the wind, and a covert from the tempest. As rivers of water in a dry place as the shadow of a great rock in a weary land. And many, many times we need that kind of refuge. I love those first two verses. Verse 3 now. We'll go on with our exposition. It says, And the eyes of them that see shall not be dim. God will give clear vision. The Lord's going to give clear vision in that day. We need clear vision today. Jesus said in Revelation, I believe it's the third chapter, uh, he said, Anoint thine eyes with eye salve, that thou mayest see. Remember one one church says, maybe it's the second chapter, but he says, uh, he said to this church, Thou sayest that I am rich and increased with goods, and knowest not that thou art miserable and wretched and poor. And he says, Buy me gold tried in the fire, in the furnace. I believe it is the third chapter. Let me go check it out now. So I'll, I'll satisfy my curiosity and maybe as well as yours. Third chapter, verse 17. Let's get it all. 17 and 18. He says, Because thou sayest I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked, I counsel thee to buy me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. We need God's clothing, don't we? And then it says, And anoint thine eyes, anoint thine eyes with eye salve, that thou mayest see. Anoint thine eyes with eye salve, that thou mayest see. There was a kind of an ointment that they used to doctor or to put on the eyes. In fact, they've had ointments through the years that they put on the eyes for to help certain things and problems. But it says, and of course we're talking here about spiritual sight. So he says, we'll not be blind. Back to the passage in Isaiah 32. Let's notice verse 3. And the eyes of them that shall uh, that see shall not be dim. And the ears of them that hear shall hearken will be able to hear. Hear God's Word. The heart also of the rash shall understand knowledge. The rash means the hasty shall understand knowledge. And the tongue of the stammer shall be ready to speak plainly. I like that. Elegantly, it says in the marginal reference. The vile person... Who is the vile person? They do not take God seriously. The vile person shall be no more called liberal. In other words, he'll not be called good, uh, a noble or a good man. Liberal means noble or good. 
So the vile person, now a lot of times the vile person is called liberal. He's called good. Uh, the Bible warns us earlier in even other places besides the book of Isaiah that some call uh, good evil and evil good. Remember when we had that passage of Scripture. And here it says, The vile person uh, shall no more be called... no." shall be no more called liberal, nor the churl, the churl is the scoundrel, said to be bountiful, just because he's a scoundrel and he seems to be bountiful. Verse 6 says, For the vile person will speak villainy, and his heart will work iniquity to practice hypocrisy and to utter error against the Lord, to make empty the soul of the hungry, and he will cause the drink of the thirsty to fail. Well, that's like a vile person, isn't it? And then it says in verse 7, The instruments also of the churl are evil, or the scoundrel are evil. He deviseth wicked devices to destroy the poor with lying words. To destroy the poor with what? Lying words. You know, one of the worst things you can do to anyone is to lie about them. They say, what's that old saying? Words won't hurt me. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That's not true. Words do hurt. And it says to destroy the poor with lying words, even when the needy speaketh right. But the liberal deviseth liberal things, and by liberal things shall he stand. In other words, the noble or the good man, or good men, they devise what? Liberal things. They devise good things. And by liberal things, good things, uh, shall he stand. That means he'll be established. You'll be established in righteousness. Did you know if you do right? You'll be established in right. You say, well, I've been accused of a lot of things. Never mind. Don't worry about that. Who hasn't been? But if it's not true, don't worry about it. It's only if it's true that it should worry you. Right? It's only if it's true. And Peter talks about that. Jesus said, if they shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. But Peter talks about it. Let me give you this. The book of First Peter. Look in the book of 1 Peter, chapter 2. 1 Peter, chapter 2. In verse uh, 19, it says, For this is thankworthy if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. Okay, it says, This is thankworthy. That's good. That's praiseworthy, isn't it? But, look at the next verse. For what glory is it if when you be buffeted for your faults, you take it patiently? If you be buffeted for your faults, what glory is in that? In other words, if you be buffeted for your faults, you have it coming, right? So what glory is that? But if for uh, conscience, but verse 19, for this is thankworthy if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. Okay, but the last part of verse 20 says, but if when you do well and suffer for it, you take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. This is acceptable with God. Okay, back in our passage in Isaiah, there's always, when you go into one of those leads like that, there's always a whole message of study that you could get on it. And we could elaborate on and on, but we have to come back and just stick to the verse at least somewhat. Look at uh, back in Isaiah 32, verse 9 now. It says, Rise up, you women that are at ease. Now we said this is the Careless women address. The first verses, the eight verses, was 
uh, the king and his rule we've been talking about. Now, these are the careless women that are addressed. Rise up, you women that are at ease. Hear my voice, ye careless daughters. They're at ease and they're careless. Give ear to, unto my speech. Now, some of them wouldn't listen. Many days and years shall ye be troubled, ye careless women, for the vintage shall fail, the gathering shall not come. Tremble, ye women that are at ease, be troubled, ye careless ones. Strip you and make you bare, and gird sackcloth upon your loins. In other words, come to the place of mourning. They shall lament for the teats, for the pleasant field, for the fruitful vine. In other words, they'll want this prosperity and this uh, uh, blessing that they could have. Uh, if you turn to the book of uh, uh, Amos chapter 4 and verse 1, it says, Hear this word, God says through Amos to the women of that same time, Ye kind of Bashan that are in the mountain of Samaria. In other words, they are spoken of as kind of Bashan that are in the mountain of Samaria, which oppress the poor, which crush the needy, which say to their masters, Bring and let us drink. And he speaks of them. And then in chapter 6, verse 1, he says, Woe to them that are at ease in Zion. Isaiah spoke of them at ease. Woe to them that are at ease in Zion. And trust in the mountain of Samaria. The ease in Zion. That means their their self-satisfaction. Satisfied with self. Indulgence. Indifference. Carelessness. Negligence. Down in verse 3 it says, You put far away the evil day. And cause the seed of knowledge, of violence rather, to come near. That lie upon beds of ivory and stretch themselves upon couches and eat the lambs out of the flock and the cows in the midst of the stall. That chant to the sound of the vial and invent to themselves instruments of music like David. That drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with chief ointments. But, but they are not grieved for the affliction of Joseph. They don't care about the other fellow and their brother. Okay, back in Isaiah 32, please. Verses 13 and... We'll get verse 13 and 14. The judgment of the land and the city. And the judgment that rested upon the land and the city, verses 13 and 14, was not permanent. And we'll see that by reading verse 15. But verse 13 and 14, notice it says, Upon the land of my people shall come up thorns and briars. Isn't it a terrible thing when God has to chasten His own people on the land of my people? Yea, upon all the houses of joy in the joy city, because the palaces shall be forsaken and the multitude of the city shall be left, and the forts and towers shall be for dens forever, a joy of wild asses, a pasture of flocks. In other words, this is the judgment that God will bring upon the land and upon the city during that time, in the future. But we said that this judgment would not be permanent, because look at verse 15. Until the Spirit be poured upon us from on high. Now then, the Holy Spirit was poured out upon the church on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, remember? And the Bible says concerning that time, Peter said, and by the way, Joel is the one that predicts this, He says, this is that which is spoken by the prophet Joel. Now, he did not say, and we taught this in Sunday school not too long back, he did not say, this is fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet Joel. 
There's a good deal of difference to say this is like that than to say this is fulfilled. So this scripture looks beyond the time of the pouring out of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost until the outpouring of the Spirit upon Israel at the end of the tribulation period. So it looks beyond the day of Pentecost. And then it will be said, this is fulfilled, which is spoken by the prophet Joel, and also which is spoken by Isaiah. It will be fulfilled when that time happens. But when it happened, as we studied in Acts chapter 2, and Peter says, this is that which is spoken of by the prophet Joel, it comes to pass in the last days that I will pour out of my Spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall uh, see visions, your young men shall dream dreams. And then he says, he goes on to say, the sun shall be darkened, the moon will not give her light, there will be changes in the heavens. That didn't happen on the day of Pentecost because he was referring to a future time that would really happen. All of it would be fulfilled, but he says, this is that. And now here, it says, this judgment upon the people and upon the land and upon the city would be not permanent because in verse 15, look at it carefully. Isaiah 32.15 Until the Spirit be poured upon us from on high, for the restoration of Israel has not yet taken place, and this will take place then, when Israel is restored. And when will that be? That will be at the end of the tribulation period, which is yet future. That will be yet future after Christ comes and takes His own to be with Him. It will be after seven years of tribulation period, at the end of it, when the Holy Spirit is poured out upon His people and restoration will take place. That will be the final outpouring of His Holy Spirit. And the wilderness will be a fruitful field. What are we looking at now? Millennial blessings. The wilderness shall be a fruitful field and the fruitful field shall be counted for a forest. It will be so great, it will be like a forest of of prosperity. Then judgment shall dwell in the wilderness. He's talking about this time of judgment. We're going to find the hope of the future begins in verse 15 that we said in this chapter when we gave you an outline of it. This is the hope of the future. And it begins with that pouring out of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Not on the day of Pentecost, but at a future time for Israel's restoration. Then shall... Judgment, verse 16, dwell in the wilderness and righteousness remain in the fruitful field. We don't see anything like that. We, we didn't see it on the day of Pentecost either, did we? But we will see it in the future. Israel will see it. And we will see it because we will also be glorified in the future or be uh, with them in the millennium. When Jesus comes back in Revelation chapter 19 to this earth and judges This last Assyrian that's spoken of, we find it in the next chapter. We'll get it in our next lesson. But when he judges that final uh, judgment upon the wicked, then he's coming back from heaven, Revelation 19. And when that judgment takes place in the 20th chapter, you'll find a thousand year reign of peace and righteousness. And not only will Israel go out of the tribulation into that period of rule of reign of Christ in righteousness, but all those that Christ brings with Him that had part in the first resurrection will come with Him and we'll all enjoy because we'll be resurrected and be brought back again with the Lord in that 20th chapter of the book of Revelation. So this looks to the future. And then in verse 17, 
And it says, And the work of righteousness shall be peace, and the effect of righteousness, quietness and assurance forever. I gave you several verses on that previous. When we were studying earlier, I gave you Romans fourteen seventeen. Do you still have that reference? Uh, the work of righteousness shall be peace, and the effect of righteousness, quietness and assurance forever. What does the work of righteousness do? The work of righteousness produces peace. What's the work of righteousness? Christ died on the cross. It says in the last three verses of Romans chapter 4 concerning Abraham, it says it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him. What was imputed to him? Righteousness. But for our sakes also. If we believe on what? On Him who was delivered for our offenses and who was raised again for our justification, then what? Righteousness will be imputed to us also. Now then, that work of the cross produced righteousness for you and I. And then Romans chapter 5 verse 1 says, Therefore, and you look back to those three verses and the whole chapter as far as that goes, and it's uh, Romans 5 one says, Therefore, looking back, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. Okay, look at this verse. The work of righteousness shall be peace. That work of righteousness brought peace. And it says, and the effect of righteousness. What is the effect of it? Quietness and assurance forever. Stability, quietness and assurance forever. Now, verse 18. And again, Isaiah is reminding and predicting the millennial blessings of the Holy Spirit, beginning with verse 15. And in verse 18, he says this, And my people shall dwell in a peaceable habitation. We know that hasn't happened for Israel yet, has it? They're in turmoil, and they have been all through the ages, all through the years. And they're still in turmoil. Even today, we go over to... The Holy Land, and what do we find? Nothing but turmoil. You hear it on the news almost every few days, or at least every week or two. It used to be every day on the news. Now it seems to be a little slack period, but then you'll hear it again, not too long off. It says, My people shall dwell in a peaceable habitation, and in sure dwellings, their dwellings now are all not very sure, are they? Remember the dwellings they're trying to put up, and then... Some people are uh, fighting against the new dwellings, and of course they, it has its pros and cons. I'm not going to get into that, but it's just the point I want to make. It's not sure dwellings, is it? That's the point I want to make. And in quiet resting places. They're not in quiet resting places now. So look, in verse 15, you have uh, prosperity. Notice, wilderness of a fruitful field, and the fruitful field counted as a forest. Verse 16 and 17, you have righteousness. Verse 17, you have peace. And when is this going to come? Verse 19 tells us when it will be. When the forest of human pride is leveled by the hail of God's judgment, it says, when it shall hail, coming down on the forest, and the city shall be low in a low place. In other words, God has a way of working this out, but He has to do it by bringing chastening. And then look at verse 20. Blessed are ye that sow beside all waters, that send forth the feet of the oxen and the ass. In other words, there's going to be happiness for those that will go ahead and, and uh, sow their seed. God says it's going to make it fruitful. And to give it a spiritual application, you and I, blessed are they that sow beside all waters. 
in the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 12. It says, In the morning sow thy seed, and in the evening withhold not thine hand. For you don't, thou knowest not which shall bring forth, whether it be good or, or bad. You don't know what it, good it will do. So you and I, as Christians, are to continue to just sow the seed of God's Word. This, that's the spiritual application. We know it will be literally true for Israel, but to just stick to that for a moment. You say, well, it doesn't do me any good to sow the seed because, uh, you know, it doesn't bring forth any fruit. How do you know it doesn't? It says you can't tell. It may be good. It may be bad. It may bring it forth. And it may not. But you don't know. And so it's, you, it's up to you and I to keep sowing, isn't it? And it says, In the morning sow thy seed, and in the evening withhold not thine hand. I know that used to, this is going on 39 years. February the 1st will be 39 years I've been preaching in this church. We started it 39 years ago in February, this coming February. Okay? And there's been times that you talk to people, speak to people, witness to people, preach to people, and you think it never do any good. But lo and behold, you find out it does. And down the line, something happens. And it may be six months, it may be six years, it may be even longer, but it happens. 